Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles then to Matthew chapter 27? Matthew chapter 27, uh, we will be reading verses 11 through 26 together. And would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11, the word of God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Today, of course, is Easter Sunday. It is that day when Christians throughout the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we celebrate the resurrection not simply because it's a glorious and a miraculous event, but because it's an event of such profound theological and redemptive significance. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of God's promises find their yes and amen. In his victory over death, the resurrection provides the foundation for our forgiveness and our justification. The resurrection is the ground of our new life in Christ. And it is the ground of our hope for the life to come, the pledge of our future resurrection. It's one of the reasons I love that every week we are confessing the Apostles' Creed together. 
Because every single week, we take upon our lips that phrase that on the third day, He rose again from the dead. There is a very real sense then that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. The very reason that we gather for worship on Sunday and not on Saturday is because Christ is risen. Because the resurrection has reoriented the entire pattern of our week. But today, as we pick things up in Matthew's gospel account, we're not there yet. I hope that in God's providence we might be, but I'm too slow. We're not there yet. And that glorious moment is still ahead, still hidden for the disciples in the mystery of the wisdom of God. Today, as we are in Matthew's Gospel, we find ourselves considering the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. This, too, is something that we confess in the Apostles' Creed every single week. Uh, Just like every week we confess the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so every single week we confess that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Have you ever considered that? Uh, That besides Jesus, the only two other human persons who are named in the creed are his mother Mary and Pontius Pilate, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The beginning of his life and the end of his life, Mary and Pilate stand like bookends on the life of our Savior, the one who is responsible for giving him human life and the one who is responsible for taking it away. And so although Pilate will attempt to purge his guilt and wash his hands of this crime, he will be identified throughout history as the one who sentenced him to death. It's true, Judas betrayed him. And yes, the chief priests and the elders conspired against him. And yes, the crowds called for his crucifixion. But only Pilate had the power to sentence him. And so as we consider this account, there are all of these terrible choices being made by all of these different actors. And we'll consider these things. We'll consider the role of these religious leaders. And we'll consider the role of Pilate and the choices that he is making. And we'll consider the terrible, tragic choice that the people are making. But in all of this, I don't want us to forget the wonderful, marvelous choice that Jesus is making. The choice that Jesus is making to go to the cross. Jesus is not in this moment by accident. He is here according to the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. And he's here for us. And so as we consider this today, and as we consider Jesus today, I want to put this question before you. Is this the kind of Jesus that you want? It may seem like an odd question, but I think it's actually the question of the passage. Is this Jesus? 
the Jesus who was here in weakness and suffering and scorn and contempt. Is this the Jesus that you want? And so as we look at this passage, let me orient your thoughts around these three ways that Jesus is set before us. First, he's set before us as the silent Jesus. In verses 11 through 14, as he stands silently before his accusers. Uh, Secondly, he's set before us as the Savior Jesus. In verses 15 through 21, as he's set over against the criminal, a pseudo-Savior, Barabbas. And then finally, he is set before us here as the suffering Jesus. In verses 22 through 26, as he's delivered over to be crucified for the sins of his people, he's the silent Jesus, he's the Savior Jesus, and he is the suffering Jesus. As we begin here, as we see this silent Jesus, we find him standing before the governor. Matthew refers to Pontius Pilate no less than eight times in this chapter as the governor. And I think that is just to make the point that he is the one who's in charge. Pilate has been no friend of the Jewish people. Uh, Make no mistake, the Jews despise Pilate. They despise his rule. They view him as a bully and a tyrant, and there are good historical reasons why. Nevertheless, he is the one that they have to deal with. He's not a private person. He is a public person. He is Caesar's spokesman in Judea. He's the face of Rome. He embodies Roman power in this region. And why do they have to deal with Pilate? Because in order to get what they want, and what do they want? They want Jesus dead. They want a sentence of capital punishment. But in order to get what they want, Jesus must be lawfully executed by Roman authority. He must be tried, he must be convicted, he must be sentenced before a Roman court because the Jews did not have the power to execute capital crimes. And so the question is, what has he done that's deserving of death? In their own court, what did they find him guilty of? They found him guilty of blasphemy. But blasphemy is a religious charge, isn't it? It's not a civil charge. They know that this is not going to go over with Rome. For the Romans, the whole Judean religion, the whole Jewish religion was blasphemous. Uh, It would be like someone bringing someone before a judge downtown and accusing them of not believing in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth. What's the judge going to say? Okay, what's that to me? Did he kill somebody? Uh, Did he steal something? So in order to get what they want, they can't just bring this religious charge. They have to drum something up that will seem like it is a threat to Pilate and to Rome. And so instead, they accuse him of sedition and of treason. They try to make him out to be a threat to Rome. Matthew gives us the short version, but Luke 23 and John 18 fill in the details. Luke tells us, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, 
forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Let's just pause right there. Is that true? Did Jesus forbid people to give tribute to Caesar? In fact, he did the very opposite. They came trying to trap him, trying to test him. Is it lawful to pay taxes unto Caesar? And what did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but unto God what is God's. And when Pilate asks if he is a king, John gives us a fuller answer. Jesus acknowledges the truth of it. It's as you say. But he goes on and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that, it might not, that I might not be delivered over. You see, what he's, what he's saying is something about the spiritual nature of his kingdom, but he's also making it clear that their charges are false. He is not coming and threatening. He is not treasonous. He is, he is not a threat to Rome. He is a freedom fighter, but he's fighting for a different kind of freedom. And so he answers Pilate. But then, as the Jews begin to accuse him, and as the Jews begin to charge him, he gives no answer at all. He's already been beaten by them. Here, blood is trickling down his face, their spit is clinging to his beard. And he just stands there and takes it. He just stands there while they lie about him and they slander him. Peter says of Jesus that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. As Jesus stood there silent before his accusers, he stood there for us. But not only does he stand there as our substitute, Peter says he stands there giving us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. I think those can be hard words for us to hear. Because our impulse in the face of such injustice is just the opposite. Our impulse is to fight back. It is to defend ourselves. It is to take revenge. But Jesus is silent. He entrusts himself to the justice of the Lord. And then Pilate says to him, Don't you hear everything that they are testifying against you? But still, he gives no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor is greatly amazed. Now, Pilate is, is not dumb. Pilate has been governing for ten years. Pilate can see through all of this. He knows that this is a charade. Verse 18 tells us he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It goes kind of well with the passage that Pastor Crawford read. The wisdom that is from below, that is envious, full of selfish ambition and jealousy, is earthly, sensual, and demonic. 
They are delivering him up because of jealousy, because of envy, because of his fame, because of his wisdom, because of his power. And Pilate knows. He's not fooled by their manipulative masquerade here. He doesn't think for a moment that Jesus is a threat. He doesn't believe for a moment that Jesus is a seditious traitor. He sees exactly what's going on, but he is amazed that Jesus will stand there and take it. He is amazed that he will allow them to spew out these lies without taking a moment to defend himself. And so Pilate wants to let him go. Luke makes that clear. Pilate is actually looking for a way to release Jesus. Pilate wants to get out of this awkward situation. And that brings us to our next point. We've seen the silent Jesus consider the Savior Jesus. Pilate's plan is a sort of prisoner exchange. Verse 15 tells us, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. As we consider the Savior Jesus, we are meant to consider him over and against this other pseudo-Savior. Barabbas, the one called Barabbas. And to to help you sort of see how they are set over against each other, I, I want to just draw out some of the parallels for you. First, we're told here that Barabbas was popular. The ESV translates this as notorious. Now, given his character, that may be a good translation, but the word really just means he's well known, he's famous. Both of these men's reputations precede them. A second thing, which uh, perhaps you do not know, is that Barabbas had a first name. I suspect you knew he had a first name, or suspected he had a first name. But do you know what his name was? If you happen to be using an older version of the NIV here today, you'll find that verse 17 reads like this. Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. They share the same name. Jesus was a common name. It's simply the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. The reason it doesn't appear that way in our version, in the ESV, is because simply it's not in the majority of manuscripts. Uh, But some translations, the NIV, the NET, have included it because it it does appear in in, uh, several early manuscripts and because it was well known to history. Early church fathers uh, speak of this. And so they're both well known. They're both named Jesus. And then a third thing you may not be aware of is that the word Barabbas, what he is called by, literally means in Aramaic, the son of the father. Bar is the word son. Think here of Simon Bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. And you know the word Abba because we cry out to God, Abba, Father. So what this man is commonly referred to is Jesus, the son of the father. Now, how does Jesus, who is called Messiah, How does he commonly refer to himself throughout the Gospels? 
How does he speak of his relationship to God? Well, he does so as the son of the father. There's some interesting and providential parallels here, aren't there? But if there are these interesting providential parallels, that's where the parallels end and the contrast begins. Because although they are both well-known, although they both share the same name and even the same designation, they could not be more different. Matthew doesn't tell us a lot about Barabbas, only that he was a notorious prisoner, but the other Gospels tell us why he was a notorious prisoner. Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels include Barabbas. Mark, Luke, and John all tell us, using the words of Mark, that Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising. You see, Barabbas was a Jewish zealot. He was a nationalist. Uh, He was a man of the people, a patriot, a freedom fighter. He was famous because he was someone who wasn't afraid to use force against the Romans. He was a rebel and a revolutionary. He is a freedom fighter. He's a man who's calling on his fellow countrymen to take up arms And Jesus is calling on his fellow countrymen to take up a cross. And in verses 11 through 15, we've seen how he is taking up his own cross. How he's standing there silent as he's being slandered and falsely accused. How he's not responding in kind. How he's not reviling in return. How he is submitting to the cross. How different from Barabbas. Barabbas is an aggressor. Barabbas is violent. Barabbas wants to stick it to the man. Who do you think holds out more hope for Israel? If you were choosing between these two men, Brunner says, an Israelite might temporarily be forgiven for thinking that Jesus Barabbas was a more realistic hope for Israel's immediate future than a preacher of nonviolence against the oppressors. And I think that once we begin to appreciate these parallels and we appreciate the contrast, I think we're in a position to appreciate the question. The question. Which Jesus do you want? That's the question that pulses through this narrative. Three times it's said. Verse 15, to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Verse 17, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Verse 21, the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? What do you want? What kind of Savior are you looking for? What kind of Jesus would you pin your hopes on? And I think that's a question that we as the church are constantly having to wrestle with. Every generation is having to wrestle with this question. Do we want the Jesus presented to us in the Bible... Or do we want some other kind of Jesus? A Jesus that appeals maybe 
a little bit more to our cultural sentiments and sensibilities. Do we want the revolutionary Jesus, the rebel Jesus, the Jesus who rolls up his sleeves, the Jesus who doesn't take smack from anybody, the Jesus who waves the flag and is ready to use force? Do we want the Jesus of liberal Christianity? The moralist Jesus, the do-gooder Jesus, the unoffensive Jesus, the Jesus who is only love, who never talks about hell or judgment, who accepts everybody just the way they are. Do we want the Jesus of the health and wealth gospel? The Jesus who wants you to live your best life now. The Jesus who wants to bless you with every material blessing. Do we want the Jesus of fill in the blank? What kind of Jesus are we looking for? What sort of Savior do we want? What sort of Savior do we need? And do we want this Jesus? Do we want the Jesus presented to us in the gospel? Do we want the Jesus in all of his weakness and misery, the Jesus who suffers The Jesus who embodies the foolishness of the cross. Pilate does not believe that Jesus is guilty. He wants to let him go. He he thinks this offer of an exchange might be his way out. And not only does he not think he's guilty, his wife doesn't think he's guilty. And she's pressuring him to let that righteous man go because she has been vexed in her dreams because of him. It's an interesting parenthetical comment. Uh, And I don't don't have much to say about it other than just a few quick things. First, I think it, it serves to show God's sovereignty over all of the minute details of what is going on here. That even this Gentile woman can see what the Jewish leaders cannot see. Uh, Secondly, I think it serves as a witness to the righteousness of Jesus over against the unrighteousness of Barabbas. The two things Jesus is called in in this trial are that he's innocent and that he's righteous. And so it highlights this contrast even more. And the third, I think it serves to show us husbands that we should probably listen to our wives a little bit more especially when they're giving true and godly counsel. I say it a little tongue-in-cheek, but I mean it with all sincerity. When our wives give us godly counsel, we should hear them, we should heed them. Unfortunately, Pilate will not be heeding the counsel of his wife, but will instead succumb to the demands of the crowds, The crowds who are being instigated by the chief priests and the elders who are persuading the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Again, note the irony. These who should be most looking for the Messiah, who should be recognizing the Messiah, who should be pointing the people to the Messiah, pointing God's people to the good shepherd, are instead leading him like a lamb to the slaughter, and pointing to a false hope. So that when Pilate finally puts the question to them, which one do you want? They make the wretched choice. 
They choose the sort of Savior that they want, and they cry out, Barabbas. That brings us to our final point here. We've considered the silent Jesus and the Savior Jesus. Finally, consider the suffering Jesus. In verse 22, Pilate asks the crowd, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. Think of what they're asking for. Not only are they asking for the release of a known murderer, they're asking for the murder of a known innocent. And worse than that, they're asking that he might receive the worst possible sort of death. In crucifixion, the Romans had perfected the art of agony. They had perfected the art of shame and of torture. Even Pilate is surprised by the brutality of the crowds, and so he is attempting to intervene. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. What do you do if you don't have a good answer to a question? Just shout louder. Seems to still be the case. We see it every day. You just keep raising the volume. You just thunder your contempt and disdain. And when Pilate sees this, when he not only sees that nothing is being gained, but he sees that a riot is about to, be, to break loose on a national feast time, he finally caves. Undoubtedly, he fears for his position and his power in the realm. The Romans did not suffer riots well. And so to allow a riot, you know, conceivably could be a total disaster for his political career. The words of another gospel are probably ringing in his ears. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. And so rather than standing by the courage of his convictions and doing what he knows is right, what he believes is right, he does the thing that he is famous throughout history for. He washes his hands before the crowd a symbolic gesture of his words, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And then he says, see to it yourselves. It's particularly interesting that he uses that phrase because in Greek, it's the exact same phrase that we saw last week when, Jesus, when uh, Judas went to the priests confessing his guilt and saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, See to it yourself. We might say what what is being said here is that this is not on me, this is on you. And so he assumes no responsibility. And in assuming no responsibility, he refuses to help Jesus. Now we might just pause and ask Is that true? Is Pilate really? innocence of this man's blood. I mentioned that eight times Matthew uses the language of governor, that Pilate is the governor. The governor said, the governor saw, the governor was amazed. Pilate is the governor. 
Pilate is the one who commands Roman legions. Pilate is the one who has all of Rome's power at his disposal to quell and disperse riots if they break out. He's done it before. It's part of the reason the Jews hate him. The blood of the Gentiles was mingled in the courts. But he has the power. So when Pilate washes his hands of Jesus, he's not ridding himself of blame. He's adding to his blame because he's abdicating his duty as the governor. He's abdicating what God has given him to bear the sword righteously. So Pilate can say whatever he wants, but we are going to continue to say every week he suffered under Pontius Pilate. God will not permit this spin of events to stand. The truth will be declared week in and week out as a witness against him. And here's the point. Not making a choice about Jesus is making a choice about Jesus. Jesus says, you cannot be indifferent to me. You are either for me or you are against me. Nobody, not even Pilate, can decide to be indifferent toward Christ But if Pilate wants to be indifferent, the crowds crowds are not indifferent. They understand exactly what Pilate is saying. And they say, in the most tragic way possible, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, we've heard this sort of language before in the Gospel of Matthew. Only the last time we heard it on the lips of Jesus as he warned the people that they would kill the prophets that he sent them. And when they did, on them would come all of the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah. The blood of the prophets would be on their heads. That is because in joining in killing the prophets, they were joining in the sins of their fathers. They were responsible for the death of the prophets. And you remember, Jesus did not say that with glee. He he was not happy to declare this woe upon them. He said it with tears in his eyes as he spoke of how he would have gathered them up like a hen gathers her brood under her, her wings, but they were unwilling. And because they were unwilling, it would mean their ultimate destruction, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think this choice that they are making right here is a very foreboding choice. This choice where they choose a militant Savior over a suffering Savior. It's that same penchant for a militant Savior that will lead Israel to revolt in 68 AD, which will bring about their destruction in 70 AD. And so now they take the very words that Jesus spoke and they apply them to themselves. His blood is on our heads. His blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. On the one hand, it's a tragic statement. On the other hand, it's an ironic statement. Because it could be read another way. It might be understood in the way of redemption. Because the Bible always links Redemption 
through his blood. And in that sense, these are words that I hope we all say. His blood be on my head and on the heads of my children. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Blood to wash away our iniquity, transgression, and sin. Blood to cover guilt. Blood to cover shame. Blood to bring us redemption and reconciliation with God. This is a marvelous thing about the gospel, about the good news. It's so good that even people who are guilty of shedding Jesus' innocent blood can be covered by his blood. And if you are reading this and you are just thinking about the terrible, tragic choices of others, we're still missing the point. Because this is a story about us. This is the story about the evil of our depraved and corrupt human hearts. We should sing with the hymn that says, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. We should be those who identify with those in this tragic picture. The passage ends with a statement that I think sums it all up very well. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. It's, it's, you know, it's not surprising that throughout the church's history, the church has read this parallel story of Barabbas and Jesus as a substitution story. It is a substitution story. Jesus is being scourged and delivered over for others. And I don't think that's better seen anywhere than in Barabbas himself. This substitution, this exchange of Jesus for Barabbas, Barabbas for Jesus, preaches the gospel. It preaches to us the good news that God has poured out his wrath on his righteous, innocent son so that guilty, rebellious sons might go free. So that guilty, rebellious sons might be released from the penalty of their sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the exchange. And so let me just go back to where I began and put the question before you. What kind of Jesus do you want? Do you want this Jesus? Do you want the Jesus whose victory is through the weakness and foolish of, foolishness of the cross? That generation despised the suffering Savior and chose a militant Savior. But they had no idea. They had no idea that the choice of that militant Savior would just lead to their destruction. But that this suffering Savior would be raised up in glory. Rome would not be conquered by the sword of the Jews, but it would be conquered by the gospel of Jesus. And even today, this good news continues to conquer hearts. And I don't know everyone here today. If you're here and you think you can be indifferent to Jesus... 
please learn from the witness of Pilate that not making a choice about Jesus is making a choice. And today Jesus is before you in the gospel. And he says that if you will repent of your sins and trust in him, he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do not pretend that you can listen to my words this morning and wash your hands of them and be blameless. The only way you may be blameless is if Jesus washes you. And if Jesus washes you, you will be truly clean. Or maybe you're here and you're trusting in some other sort of Savior. Maybe you are looking for some other kind of Jesus. You are putting your hope in something else. Know that only this Savior will do. Only this Jesus can save. Give up all of your false hopes and find living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But maybe you're here and you truly love this Savior. This Jesus of the Bible. And you know that this is the Jesus you need because you know your own heart. If that is you, then Peter says you are called to follow in his footsteps. To suffer with him in order that you might be glorified with him. Paul says that to know him and to know him in the power of his resurrection power Think about this. To know him in the power of his resurrection, Paul says, is to share in his suffering and to become like him in his death. The resurrection power of God is displayed in this age, not in glory and might and power, but in the cross, in suffering, in laying down your life for your wife and for your children, in loving your neighbor, That's where the resurrection power of God is in display. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by those versions of the Christian gospel that see Christianity as this powerful force, right, outside of the gospel that will conquer the nations by force. Every time the church gets engaged in that, it is to their shame. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I pray that this is the Jesus that we want, and I pray that we might all say, O Lord, in the best way, let your blood be upon me and upon my children. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you do conquer You conquer through the gospel, through the good news. You claim hearts. You bring us uh, by your dominion, under your power, so that we uh, who have been brought under your dominion offer ourselves freely to you in this, the day of your power. But Lord, that power of the resurrection is seen in suffering with you that we might also be glorified with you. Lord, we thank you that you have done this for us, that, that you, the innocent, righteous Son of the Father, have given yourself up for wicked, guilty, and rebellious sons, sons who are deserving of death. Lord, we thank you for the way the gospel preaches to us freedom and life. And Lord, I pray that we might find life by looking to you in faith, 
finding the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We say it all in his name. Amen. One of the things that I reflected on several times this week, of course, I've made the point over and over again that Jesus does not go accidentally to the cross, right? That he has repeatedly uh, foretold that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be ill-treated, that he was going to be scourged, and that he was going to be tried, and that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to hang on a cross. What's interesting about that is that that is not the Jewish form of the death penalty. The Jewish form of the death penalty is stoning. The Jews actually, in some ways, hated the cross because they said, anyone who hangs upon a cross is cursed. That's what the law said. And Jesus says, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem and be stoned. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to hang on a cross. And the point there is that as he goes, he goes bearing the wrath and the curse of God's law for sinful lawbreakers. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a symbolic reminder of the cross. Jesus, in the night when he instituted it, He gave bread to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. And he took wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. This wine is my blood. And these elements together, the body and the blood, come to us broken and poured out, signifying and reminding us of the curse that our Savior endures on our behalf. And so as these elements come to us today... They come to us, the curse having been absolved, the curse having been born. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, when he was exalted into heavens, uh, Gerhardus Voss has this wonderful saying, he says, when Jesus rose on that resurrection morning, he left your sins buried in the grave so that they will never rise up against you, not even on the day of judgment. Amen? And so as we receive these elements today, Our sins are buried away. Our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. At least for all of those who are professing faith and trusting in Christ. And I would put that question to you today. Are you trusting in Christ? Do you belong to Him? Are you His child? Have you been baptized into His name? Is His name put upon you? Uh, Do you belong to His church where the gospel is faithfully being proclaimed? Are you repentant of your sins? Or are you trying to wash your hands of Jesus? The only way to be cleansed of your sins is to have His blood put upon your soul. Peter said on that night when Jesus was washing His feet, and Peter said, no, Jesus, don't wash my feet. That's gross. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And Peter says, then wash all of me. Wash my head. Wash my body. Because I want to be part of you. The only way to be cleansed of our sins is to have the blood of Christ wash us and make us clean. 
And so if you're here today and you, you belong to the church, if you've professed your faith and you're walking in faith and repentance, you're welcome to come and to join us at this meal. But if any of those things are not true of you, let me just humbly ask you to let these elements pass today. But I would also call upon you to not let Jesus pass, but to look to him in faith. And if you desire to know what it means to take up your cross and follow him, please just come and speak with me. There's nothing I'd rather speak to you about. But today, as we come to this meal, let's come with uh, resurrection hope in our minds. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart now for this holy use. Lord, as we come to this table, we know that we are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs that fall from your table. And yet you do not call us like dogs to come and to gather up crumbs. You call us as your sons and daughters to come and to pull up a seat to your banqueting table. And then you yourself give us bread and wine to encourage and to nurture our faith, to feed us on yourself and all of your benefits. And so, Lord, we ask and pray that even now today, as we come to this table, you would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, all of these things might be true of us. And so we say it in Jesus' name. Amen.